in Sombatai, and next summer we plan another session in June. And if somebody cannot come to New Zealand, there's no problem because as soon as they got the floor. Yeah, okay. <coughs> Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome you to Budapest. Welcome you to Hungary. Welcome you to the inaugural session of the new Austrian School of Economics. I would like to introduce to you, if you didn't know him uh, already, Philip Barton is the president of the Gold Standard Institute, which is headquartered in Vienna. Philip, we welcome you here. I would also like to introduce uh, my assistant professors who are going to give one or more lectures as we go. Uh, it will make the announcement in you course later. Rudy Fritsch from Canada. Peter van Kopenola from Belgium. And Sandeep Jetley from London. He is originally from India but he lives in London and he is uh, he has been active for the past few years. Welcome. And welcome to all of you. I guess we have enough time to get acquainted. Everybody will be able to make acquaintances of all the others. Now, I was expecting my wife Judith, she just disappeared, but she will say a few words about our future plans. But we already run pretty late, uh, so I guess I just start and if she comes she can pick it up. Uh, obviously you are all aware that this is the present session, which is a 10-day or 20-course session, is just one quarter of a program, at the end of which uh, we are promising to give you a diploma subject to a formal written examination after completion of the four courses. So we hope that you will like this session and Judith, this is my wife Judith and helper. Judith, she has done a great deal of work. I guess most of you have been dealing with her and she's going to continue. If you have any problem, just ask her. You, hopefully you get your, her phone number and cell phone number as well, both my mobile phone number. Judith, uh, we are going to ask you to say a few words about our 
longer term plans. So we have uh, plans for November this year to meet again in New Zealand. Now don't get frightened, number one, <laughs> uh, the distance may be much greater than to North America, but we found out to our great pleasure that the airfare, at least from Budapest, is cheaper than flying to uh, North America. Uh, I don't know how long it will last, but I asked Louis to come here because he will, he's uh, Canadian, a French Canadian, but he lives, has lived in New Zealand for the past 24 years. 24 years. So, but New Zealand is just a wonderful country. We have been there and we can testify to that. And uh, if you can, by all means, come because you won't regret it. It's just an experience of a lifetime. And we don't know what kind of world this is going to be and how, how much trouble we'll have in both in Europe and in North America. But it seems to me that New Zealand will be a peaceful uh, place no matter what happens. And if I was younger, I would certainly try to uh, relocate there. But uh, at my age, it's probably not a good uh, proposition. So, Louis, uh, we have been talking about this for some time that we'll have a 10 day, 20 course session of the new uh, ASEAN School of Economics in New Zealand, more particularly on the South Island. Uh, has something happened in the meantime? Uh, I, I think it would be. Um easiest to attract as many New Zealanders and maybe Australians as well to attend if we could have a moving uh, or rotating uh, uh, site for the two weeks. One week in Auckland, for example, three days in Wellington and two days in Christchurch or something like that. Christchurch is on the South Island. Christchurch is on the and, South Island. Uh, Wellington and Auckland, North, North Island. Island. Yeah. But both are fantastic. I, I mean, we, we haven't been to the South Island, but the North Island is also fantastic, and, and people say the South Island is at least as interesting. So, And the, the interest is there. Um, so uh, I think there's a number of people who know of your work, Professor, have you and what you've done in uh, previous years in Australia. So hopefully we'd be able to attract some some uh, attendees from Australia as well. Uh, but um, I, can't, I can't see any difficulty in gathering a, a reasonable number of, of people, especially if we do it this way as opposed to two weeks in one location. Mm -hmm. That's an idea. But so far it's um, it's not finalized, so, but it would be the earlier part of November. Earlier part, yeah, very good, because on the second part... Because at the end of November, the professor and I are presenting a paper at the Society of Actuaries in New Zealand. I'm an actuary, and I present a paper every time they have a conference, and uh, this year I'm uh, presenting with the professor a paper on uh, the role of gold as a numeraire. Mm. Mm. Well, thank you very much. Any question about New Zealand? Uh, uh, do you know the uh, uh, exact dates? 
No, not it would, yet. It, no, not yet, but it would be in, in the first half of November. Very likely. And, and we'll make an announcement in due course, so you won't miss it if you keep an eye on, my, for example, on my website or on the uh, Gold Standard Institute website. If amongst you the first half of November is not a good time, give give us the feedback, and maybe we can think of um, slightly alter, alternating depending on how available you are, Professor. Mm, very good. Paper you're presenting on uh, as goals as a numerator. Yes. Is it already written? No. No, the professor is going to write it for. Uh, but um, and, and no, it's not written yet. But it's in there. It's <coughs> yes. All right. It's all there. <laughs> Thank you. Now, uh, Judith will say a few words to you just. If you have any uh, lingering doubts that you may be able to come as far as New Zealand, because that would not interfere with your uh, plan to complete the program, which, as I explained, will be of four courses. So, will you just explain? No, no, no. First of all, our experience is that it is much more comfortable in, in, in Sombathei. Many of them were already in Sombathei where everything is at the same place. Everybody is uh, staying together and uh, the food is good and a nice uh, place. Here it is quite hectic. And uh, what we planned is that uh, we will have a, a next Hungarian session in March, in Szombathely, in, in Martinium at Szombathely, in March. And, and you, you must know that uh, always Antal when is uh, writing a new, a new article, it is immediately put to his web page. Is anybody who doesn't uh, know his web page? www.professorfekete.com And uh, here there is a, a flag um, event, news and event or some, something like this. And here is, here is a complete uh, announcement of, of, of the different uh, uh, comings and uh, he al al always has uh, <coughs> put announcements after his new articles about the, the, the gatherings. So then we thought that perhaps the next one we should do in June because this time many people are on holiday and uh, couldn't come because of that. And I, I don't know what about the, the, the students, because as I, as I got to know, the, the uh, German students hasn't still finished their semester. The last semester they hasn't finished yet. So I don't know whether it, it is okay for, for them in June. 
I will try to make some investigation about this. But actually we think it should be in, in June. And then again, um, during the, the autumn, uh, we will we, we plan to make the, the fourth course. But if uh, you miss the second course in New Zealand, then, then you could come to the, to the next one, because we will rotate it like this, and you, you can come to, uh, to, to the second course of the next uh, set. Okay? So that is what, how, how we see actually the, the, the things. Thank you very much. Any question about the future plans? Well, there will be other opportunities if you have later something occurs to you, you will have lots of opportunities to ask the question. So, well, uh, as I say, we are running behind schedule, but no worry. <laughs> we, we will have our coffee break. I hope the coffee is brewing and uh, we'll be ready in an hour's time. And uh, uh, there will be cookies and whatever. And this will be the uh, routine during the rest of the uh, session. Uh, one hour lecture in the morning, um, followed by half an hour coffee break. And ha after the coffee break, we come back here and have the discussion period. So today we'll be running half an hour late, but the, as I say, there's no problem. However, in the future session, future uh, lectures, I would like to keep to the timetable, uh, which means 9.30 sharp in the morning. I would like to start the lecture and we should be ready by 12 at the very latest, probably 11.30, but if we run a little bit late, it's no problem, 12.30. And then everybody is on her or his own uh, for lunch. We have showed people around the little restaurant just across the street, but you have other choices too. And in the afternoon, the first uh, thing is the lecture, 2.30 sharp. Here, all lectures and discussions are in this room. And uh, followed by a coffee break, half an hour, and the discussion period. Uh, so by 4, uh, 30 or latest 5 o'clock we should be finishing the second session and you will uh, be able to, I hope, uh, do a little bit of sightseeing on your own, uh, taking the streetcar downtown, you will be able to see a lot of things if you cross the river Danube you'll be able to see the other bridges and a pretty good view of the Buddha, the hilly side of the city, 
whereas Pasht is flat, but uh, Buddha is hilly. We are probably going to organize some sightseeing for Saturday and Sunday. We'll talk about this later. But in the meantime, you will have these evenings, and I would uh, uh, recommend that you do a little bit of sightseeing on your own. You don't have to have a set plan what you want to see. Just take the streetcar, and uh, if you like something, you can get off. There are lots of churches, uh, fine churches and other buildings, uh, government buildings, parliament building, royal palace, because Hungary used to be a kingdom, no longer, but it does, Budapest does have a royal palace, which now is used for purpose, other purposes, such as gallery and library and others. There are lots of summer festivals going on right now. We'll give you a little bit of information on that uh, in the coming days. So, welcome. We are very happy that you are here. We hope you can make most of it. I'm trying to do my best and my assistance as well to give you something valuable. Uh, the first lecture which I'm going to deliver now is uh, available as you may already have a copy of your own and uh, I cannot promise to have the continuation as detailed as this one. I have uh, the second and third one is comparable to this, but the rest will be just one or at most two pages. However, I'm going to write it up with the help of Rudy and we'll make it available to you also, as you may have noticed, we have a cameraman, actually two, right? Rudy is the boss and he has a, an assistant. Yeah. I'm the director. Okay, you are the director. Take a picture. All right. So this means that uh, DVD will be available in due course, but that's not in my hands, so if you want to know more about this, I guess uh, it's uh, Daryl and Martha who are unfortunately not with us, but some of you might have met them. Uh, uh, Actually, they're not involved this time, uh, Professor. I'm going to be doing that. You are going to do that. Yeah, and okay. don't expect anything too fancy. I, I said I'm an editor, but I was kidding. What you get is a transcript of this whole class, hopefully with good audio, good video, and just you know session by session. There's a label at the beginning and another one at the end that's the end. Beginning, end. Nothing fancy. But the information will be there. And of course, what he says if you miss something or don't understand something, you can replay it. And he mentioned something about writing up a transcript. We're thinking about uh, writing a book or a small book that will take these concepts and perhaps expand them and explain them a little better, and that will be part of the video package. And um, I think that's one of So there will part the money all this time. Is there any problem with me? Thank you. Thank <clears throat> you. All right, let's get started. Uh, the uh, title of the course about the coordination problem in economics 
is maybe uh, maybe a little bit too forbidding, but we'll try to make it uh, accessible to everybody. I will explain why this is important now in the introductory part. We have to have a proper foundation of economics. Some of the fundamental ideas uh, have to be clarified. This is the modern scientific method. You start with certain axioms which you explain and then after that you build on these axioms. And that's what I'm trying to do. But as I say, don't don't consider this as something which is frightening. Just consider this as something that is important in order to structure knowledge properly, which is very similar to structuring the construction of a high-rise building. You've got to have a proper foundation which then, once in place, can carry the weight of the superstructure, the knowledge which we are going to build. The title of the school includes the words Austrian School of Economics. So it's only proper to mention the name of Karl Menger, who lived from 1840 to 1921. We honor him as the founder, as the founding father of the Austrian School of Economics, which today has a renaissance, a rebirth, a new chapter, because the world is at a rather bad juncture, having this uh, great financial crisis which is the result of economics just up opposing the views of Karl Menger and his followers. Now there has been Austrian school in the meantime, continuously after Karl Menger, but it was declining because of the influence of the Keynesian and Friedmanite theories. And why I call this a new Austrian school of economics is because, in my opinion, the present uh, protagonists of the Austrian school, and I specifically think of the Ludwig von Mises Institute in Auburn, Alabama, have perhaps deviated from 
manger. But even if they haven't, they don't have an open mind. And one issue in particular came up, and I think this calls for clarification. And the issue was the so-called real Bill's doctrine of Adam Smith. Of course, Adam Smith lived long before uh, Manger and other Austrians, and Adam Smith had a share of mistakes which he has made, in particular the theory of value which he established turned out to be a, a rather bad mistake. His theory of value, Adam Smith's theory of value, is the cost-based, so-called objective theory of value. Cost-based because he explains value in terms of the cost of input in order for something such as a cup or a cup of wine, what have you, in order to have the value defined, he refers to the cost of factors going into the production. And that turned out to be a mistake which Menger rectified. Menger came up with the subjective theory of value. This is the modern uh, concept of value. It's subjective because uh, no reference to costs or objective factors are made. It's the individual. The English saying is, the, is that beauty is in the eyes of the, of the beholder. So uh, Menger turns this around and says value is, the, is in the eyes of the beholder. Nothing else matters. If you can have a most costly production of something, but if the beholder doesn't see the beauty or the value, then this value just doesn't exist. It's just figment of the imagination. Now, you might say this was a quibble among theoretical theoreticians, but it wasn't because millions or even hundreds of millions of people had to die uh, simply because Karl Marx yeah. took over the, uh, the mistake which Adam Smith innocently enough made because Adam Smith wasn't aware of the catastrophic consequences once a revolutionary takes over a, a mistaken idea and runs with it it could wipe out populations of whole countries as it did in the Soviet Union uh, and other yeah. countries. In consequence of Karl Marx, his theoretical work uh, and his uh, advocating the uh, dictatorship of the proletariat, which happened, also happened in this country for 50 years. It was under the yoke of the Soviet Union. And you can see, because this 
country is still a very poor country if you take a closer look. He actually could be said to have refined Adam Smith's concept down to just the labour in input of That's right. creating the value. The labour input. Well, I'm not saying that he took it over and made no changes. No. He took it over and made appropriate changes, but the authorship of the original idea is unmistakable. It's Adam Smith. You see? So we are talking about mistakes which could have tremendous repercussion and historic cost and all that. So uh, this is one of the great things about Karl Menger, and we salute him. And there are others, and uh, in laying the foundation here in this course, I just have to point this out to you, that we will take uh, every opportunity to uh, point out our roots, how it goes back to the uh, uh, thought of Karl Menger. Uh, we are not doctrinaires, and this is one thing I criticize in the uh, Ludwig von Mises Institute, which is also Austrian, but uh, they are too doctrinaire, too dogmatic, too, uh, uh, they even consider it as a sacrilege to criticize uh, some of the ideas of Ludwig von Mises, which is a great economist of the 20th century, a little bit uh, a generation after Karl Menger. He, I, I am one of his admirers, but there are certain mistakes he made. I'm not going to say whether the mistake was greater or lesser than the mistake of Adam Smith. Let's just say that there were mistakes and uh, I have been bold enough to point it out and as a consequence I've been given a bad name and you know the other English proverb, what happens to a dog who's been given a Bad name. Yes. <laughs> Might as well shoot him. Well, nobody has shot at me so far, <laughs> but I, I am aware that uh, the consequences would be very serious of criticizing uh, when uh, you have such a dogmatic, such a uh, doctrinaire group of people. All right. So but the main point there, isn't, isn't it, is that um, the consequences of economic untruths are also profound. So you have to say what you say. Yeah, I, and that's what I believe. Mm -hmm. But I'm not saying everybody would agree with no. that. And, uh, and but I think uh, even if I'm wrong, and I'm not saying that I cannot be wrong. Of course I can be. And I think if Mises was alive, he would say that too about himself. Yeah. He would welcome a debate. And I think that's the way knowledge uh, marches forward. 
but there are controversial statements, there are criti critiques, and then they get together and in an open debate. Even if they cannot agree at the end, there's something uh, positive coming out of yes. this, and in time, obviously, there will be uh, resolution. Yeah. And I think that's how knowledge has, has uh, uh, developed knowledge has evolved over the centuries or even thousands of years. You know I wear two hats, I'm also a mathematician and mathematics is often thought about as being uh, the branch of science which par excellence cannot make a mistake or if somebody makes one it's easy to point out. Well that's not so. Mathematics has its own share of mistakes which still linger on. Not all the controversies have been solved within mathematics. And uh, I think economics is also an example of that. So coming back to Menger's idea, he put economics on an axiomatic foundation, which was a revolutionary idea because um, economics throughout history has been a, a more like a narrative science, like history, explaining what has happened and putting it in different lights and so on. Mangel said that's not the way. Ac economics, more like mathematics, is an a priori science. A priori is Latin. It literally means uh, uh, it's, uh, think of the opposite, a a posteriori. In other words, one there are a priori truths, and there are a posteriori truths. There are truths which are imposed on us. They are not revealed by research or by experimentation or by observation. They are our whole thinking is structured in such a way that these a priori truths have to be accepted. Whereas a posteriori truth is something which you arrive at after study, research, observation, experimentation. And uh, these two methods of inquiry have to be sharply separated. The two won't mix. You, in mathematics, you can say that this is true because I've checked it a thousand examples and that's 
pretty convincing to me that this is no good, not good enough, because there are infinitely many cases you would have to check and human life is not long enough to go through this. So in other words, mathematics is a priori because you cannot say that I do experiments and I make a conclusion and that is it. This is not acceptable. It could be acceptable in biology, uh, could be acceptable in, uh, <coughs> in uh, sociology and many other branches of science, but in mathematics and in logic, these two uh, a priori uh, branches of science are definitely not. So the revolution Menger made was that he said there's a third branch of science where the truth has to be arrived at through a priori reasoning. And this is economics. So he started his uh, restructuring of economics by uh, setting up axioms, in particular two axioms. And if you refer to the first page of my syllabus, uh, the first axiom is known as the axiom of increasing utility. And I just read, an economizing individual if he has to choose between two portions of the same good or same commodity, will, other things being the same, choose the larger portion. And even animals do that. If uh, you make a dog understand that he has no choice but take one or one piece of bone or another piece of bone, cannot have both, then he will pick the bigger one. <laughs> now human beings are the same, but we have to put in that uh, little clause other things being the same. Because, for instance, uh, you could bribe the, aid, uh, the economizing individual to choose the smaller portion just to be controversial. Or it could be that uh, the economizing individual knows a little bit more. He knows that the bigger piece of uh, chunk of food is already in an advanced stage of deterioration and the other is fresh. So, you know, but other things being the same, the economizing individual will choose the larger portion. I don't think this is controversial. And we call this uh, axiom of increasing utility because uh, what we think of is value. Utility is in a way synonymous to the word value. And the question is how is the individual valuing goods? And the answer is he's valuing goods according to an increasing curve. An increasing curve. I, 
just have to go to the board and test my new Securing this <laughs> board here, and we got the the uh, what's the word for that? The texture. 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 And so let's think of a coordinate system, and uh, the horizontal axis quantity. I use a Q for that. And this could be U for utility, but value is a synonym for that, so we can think of that. And uh, according to this first axiom, this curve is going to be an increasing curve, something like this. Now, could have a different shape, could be rising faster. And it could be linear too, and that's a very important special case which we are going to return to. It's a special case of this one. Okay? So this is what the first axiom says. The utility curve which shows you utility as function of quantity is a rising curve. That was the easier axiom, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> now, the much, much more complicated axiom comes, axiom number two, which made Karl Menger very, very famous. In fact, he was one of three economists who thought about that. There was another one, uh, of course, Menger was Austrian, but there was a Swiss by the name of Walras. I'm not going to write down because we are not going to bother with Walras. But he came up with a, a similar idea, which uh, axiom number two, and then the Englishman Jevons. Uh, but again, I'm, I'm just mentioning that there are actually three economists accredited, but by and far it was Menger who got, who put it into the right context. And uh, we call it today the axiom of declining marginal utility. So I'm going to read this, but I want to make sure that everybody understands, because this is something which I definitely want you to take back with you. And then I'm going to ask the question, that, are you sure you understand it? If not, please ask questions and so on. So the axiom of, margin, of declining marginal utility says that an economizing individual having a number of equal portions of the same good at his command will assign these equal portions to the satisfaction of different needs in order of decreasing priority. 
So, uh, before I ask you whether you think you've understood this, I'm going to give you at least one example, but actually I will ask Sandy, because last year we were both lecturing in San Francisco, and uh, he mentioned uh, an example which, uh, how this is applicable to a real-life situation. And uh, then I, I mentioned another example which was uh, a little bit more elaborate. Uh, would you like to say at least one and if yes, both? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Uh, I think the example that I gave was um, the use of water. So um, it was actually um, used to, uh, to answer the paradox which had been around for a number of years, which was why, why diamonds were, were more valuable than water, even though water, water was essential for human life. And the way you have to look at it is effectively satisfaction of each need. So water obviously satisfies various human needs. Now, from the assumption that you don't have access to water to begin with, each need that is satisfied allows you to move on to the next sort of, uh, the next choice or the next subjective uh, framework for you to use the water. So for example, if you, if you uh, have no access to water currently and uh, you suddenly do, your first, your first, uh, your first, um, well, your first use of it will be to quench your own thirst. So, what do you do once you've quenched your own thirst? You know, well, depending upon the situation, it might be, uh, what, do the washing up. You know, I've quenched my thirst, I've got some dirty dishes, so I want to do some washing up. Now, what do you do once you've done your washing up? And the water is sufficient to satisfy that. You move on to the next need. And each need is, by definition, less important than the previous need. So it's not the most important need that determines the value of the water. It's, it's, it's the least important need. Because, by definition, all the other needs have been satisfied. But were that not to be the case, then that would not be the least important need. It would be one step up. So that, that, was, it, that was the quite basic example mm -hmm. that I gave. But it's, it, again, if you think about it in terms of not just, um, not just that uh, descriptive example, but in terms of um, substance and material, you know, satisfying the thirst of, of, of a person will take much more volumetrically than each successive application. So, you will have, let's say, most water going in terms of volume to satisfy human thirst, and only a minute amount, say, to water the flowers. Yet people who are classically based in terms of, 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 of determining sort of absolute value would assume that because most of the water is being used to quench your thirst, that that determines the value, when it's not, you know, 
that is regardless. And so that develops into the, content, uh, into the concept of stocks to flow, which is another way of looking at uh, marginal utility. It's like looking at that example in a mirror. All right, now at that time in San Francisco, California last year, I um, interrupted <laughs> Sandy and came up with another example which originally goes back to Manger himself. But it has been uh, improved. Well, can you improve on Manger? Anyhow, has been changed a little bit around. Uh, and I like this example because it, you can see very clearly the equal portions of the goods and how they are put to different uses or how they are earmarked for different uses. So the example is about a farmer in a remote part of uh, Brazil somewhere in the middle of the jungle, he clears a lot of a plot of land and he grows, say, wheat. And at harvest time, he brings in exactly six sacks. I think the number was six. If not, will turn out at the end. But it doesn't matter. A number of sacks of wheat. And uh, they are equal in weight, in quality, everything. But he is going to earmark each sack for a different purpose. The first sack is earmarked for the most important purpose he has, which is survival. He wants to survive, he and his family, till the next harvest when he will have another supply, but in, in the meantime he will have no possibility to replenish. If, if uh, a flood takes uh, all six sacks or the barn burns down and the wheat is gone, then he will have to starve and probably die. So that's the top priority to secure his survival is the first sack to feed his family himself. The second sack he earmarks for fodder to feed animals. He has uh, a couple of animals, maybe cows as well, and he will feed the second sack to these animals, maybe also chicken, that doesn't matter, you get the idea that he has animals and the father uh, comes from the second sack. Uh, the third sack is earmarking for making whiskey. It's not necessarily for survival, but he has a good harvest, so he can afford to uh, think of that use as well. So that's the third sack. The fourth sack is earmarking 
for feeding the birds. There are some birds around who come and uh, unless he puts out the seeds, they won't come. But this is their only entertainment. They have no television, no radio, nothing but the birds watching their uh, uh, their uh, antiques. Is that the word antique? Uh, the the bird antics. 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 Never heard. And uh, listening to their songs gives them entertainment and they can afford because there's a fourth sack. So it seems to me that five is the number. There is, there is a fifth sack which he has no use for. So if uh, conditions are present to take that fifth sack, which is a surplus, so to speak, to a very, very distant market, then he will do that. Because he doesn't have any personal need for the fifth sack. Or, or if there are six, then there are two surplus sacks, which uh, he uh, takes to the market. Now, question, what value will he put on this fifth and sixth sack when he arrives, if he ever arrives to this distant market. Well, he cannot put the high value, which is survival, because there's so many other stages in between. So he will put the value on the surplus sack, which is the marginal value, which is, excuse me, just the value which he, the marginal use is to feed it to the birds, you see. However, if his barn burns down and three of the six sacks is gone up in smoke, then the value will be very, very different. Because then he will have to consider that Okay, we have animals. Oh, I'm sorry. The, the number is six because the second sack is not animal. Uh, it's the seed grain. I'm so sorry. But you understand that is, uh, he will feed his family even before he puts aside the seed grain. And the second is not feed, feed the pigs or the cows or the chicken, but to have seed grain for the next harvest. Very important. How could I forget that? <laughs> it didn't say. It didn't seem dignified to dig it. <laughs> so you see, if if he loses three of the six sacks, then he has to uh, revamp his priorities completely and he will value that sack, the marginal sack, much more because there could be the seed uh, grain involved or feeding animals 
and forget about whiskey, forget about singing birds and all the rest because these are his priorities. So that's how he will assign the uh, equal portions of his inventory of a certain good uh, and, and this is very convincing to me and I hope it is to you as well. And that's the case with everything. You can think of any number of examples. It will always be like that. It will always be like that. Now you might say that if you have a Sanskrit uh, uh, grammar and you have five identical copies, what will you do? Well, the answer is you need one only and the rest is surplus, so you either give it away or sell it if you can and so on. But, uh, you know, but uh, most, in most cases you can do with more than one uh, portion of the same good and that is exactly how you will uh, assign value to the different portions. They are identical in every way. There's no way to distinguish between them. But yet the human, be, human mind is structured in such a way that it will assign different uh, utility to different uses because of that. Because of that. And uh, we, we call this with a rather forbidding uh, technical name declining marginal utility because the first utility has a very high priority but as you go along you get lesser and lesser. So that uh, this example may be very helpful and the example which uh, Sandy gave, why is it that water is so much more important for the survival of human beings than diamond yet we put a much higher value on diamond and a ridiculously low value uh, on, on water. Again, you just have to refer to this uh, axiom of declining marginal utility. I give you a little secret how to understand these two technical concepts a little bit better. But before I do, I just draw another graph. This is the utility curve. And I'm going to draw a marginal utility curve which will be declining. And it will be declining and approaches zero. So in that case I could say MU, marginal utility, is declining. It's always positive, but gets smaller and smaller and smaller, ever smaller. The little secret I want to give you, please keep it, <laughs> because that's my trading stock and I'm going to repeat this lecture elsewhere. But of course, I'm joking, because if you let it be known, and the whole world will know this, it will help the cause, and I don't care. People will still come to me and listen to me. Uh, 
Now, this utility connotes with total rise, which this is marginal utility, and that connotes with somebody with unit price. And there's a big difference between the two. When you talk about total price, you just go to the market and there is a pile of potatoes and you don't care whether it's 15 kilograms or 16 kilograms, you just say that's about the amount I need, so you bargain with the seller for the total, for the lot. How much do you want for this? He doesn't care about unit price because he has the supply, he wants it. So that's the total price. But more often than not, you just go to the seller in the market, open air market somewhere, and there's this pile, and you know you only have need for basketful. So you say, okay, what is your unit price? In order to be able to make a judgment whether you want to buy from that one or from the other one. And then you are talking about unit price. So the, uh, I think this is a very obvious distinction you as a shopper have, will have to make between the total price of some commodity and the unit price. Different mindset. Okay. Now, I'm suggesting it to you that in order to understand marginal utility, you think of the unit price. And it's common experience that if you buy one egg, it, they quote you one price. And if you buy a dozen eggs, they quote you a lower price, and that's just declining marginal utility for you. And if you want to buy a dozen dozen, which used to have a name in English and other languages, a gross, yes, good. Then you get an even lower price. You see, and this is pretty common in every. Uh, market. If you buy more, you get a different unit price, uh, namely a lower unit price. So this I found very useful myself to think of utility and marginal utility in terms of total price and unit price. And uh, And that brings out why one is increasing, but at a progressively lower rate, because the rate is determined by marginal utility, okay, which is declining 
and, uh, and uh, there you have it. This is axiom one, and this is axiom two. Would you like to ask any questions at this stage? Uh, yes. Uh, will you consider the formula with the sacks of wheat, all the six, that's the total price? And the unit price is the price of the first sack and the unit price or unit value of the second sack, and that's what's declining. Is that no, how you're looking at? No, it? the unit price is the surplus. So you have to have surplus, which you take to the market. The, the first five sacks are not surplus. You use it for your own uh, personal use. Partly survival, partly entertainment, partly just feeling good. But it should not be considered a surplus unless for some reason you lose some units. And then you reclassify the whole thing. So marginal utility is always the last sack which determines the value. And that's the importance of the, this axiom. The marginal utility is the last sack which uh, you can reclassify as surplus if uh, you have to. It's not the first sack, it's not the second sack, but it's always the last sack. And that is going to govern your thinking. What is an acceptable price which the other party is willing to pay you? And, and that gives you the, the leeway, the, the possibility of making up your mind. Yes, Peter. In classical economics, I was, if I remember correctly, I was given the example of students who went to a party and who offered their services as bartenders. And the example given was one bartender had this amount of utility that was fine, but it was not enough. And the second one coming in, that was also fine, and productivity increased. Add another one, a third one, and productivity increased still. But up to five, and then they started falling over each other. And that's when marginal utility, well, I think it went below zero. That was, but it was explained to us as... That was spring. not marginal utility, that was marginal productivity. Mm -hmm. So yeah, which is something else. It must have been productivity because you had... No, you are talking about labor. Labor. And productivity of labor. You're right. And, uh, and uh, there are similarities, but it's not the same. And we are still at the foundation. The marginal productivity comes at a later stage. Now, we are not going to discuss it in this course, mm -hmm. but if you keep building your knowledge of economics, marginal productivity comes later. And it will go below zero. Okay. Gentleman next to me. Yes. yes I, I have never, never seen this uh, equivalence between price and utility, but I'm thinking, in this case, is the same 
queue for seller and buyers because you you are you are, uh, uh, you are talking about price uh, prices price for the seller price for the the buyer is is different no um, I do beg your pardon. I didn't quite get that. What? Could you give me the question again? When you put price in this curve, price, no utility, price. Yeah. Price. You are talking about prices is a, is a price for for the buyer or for, for the seller. Yeah. Is the same didn't ask. curve in in this case? Is the same curve for the selling for the buyer? It's, for me, it's because utility is utility. Utility is, is value. It's, it's absolute. Uh, Sandy, can you help with this? I think Sandy can help with this. Um, okay. Um, well, first of all, if you're if you're buying something, someone has to sell it to you. So you know the the. This is this is a, for example is describing clear prices, not you know. So if you have if you have a series where you have prices that have been observed, yeah, then it's, it, it doesn't matter. I, I, I understand. I understand. But my, my, my question is about uh, absolute content like utility. Mm. It's, it's but prices is 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 relative. It's. Uh, no, price, 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 yeah, okay, you can't, you can't talk about price until you've actually determined what, 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 what that is, but until you've actually got that substance, okay, which you use to define the other substances. So, the professor will go on to it later, you know, but the, you can only talk about price once you've established that substance which has near enough constant marginal utility because then everything can be expressed as it were in terms of that in terms of that substance that substance has to exist you know because just like the largest number in a set of numbers has to exist and uh, I'll let the professor talk about that later on you know but yeah uh, there's no dollar price or money price here yet he's talking about utility to the farmer the dollar price or, or uh, indirect exchange price will arise from multiple sellers and buyers coming to their own conclusions. So if the farmer here, the th three sacks are burned, it's priceless. He's not selling it for any price. See, so you have to be careful not to, con to confuse that with a dollar or a, or a numeraire price. This is when you're looking at value and what the professor put in brackets is just the way, another way to look at this. But it's not, he didn't say dollar signs that one sack of wheat will... Yeah, well, what was the price of, of your lack of death, as it were? You <laughs> excuse me, you, you, cannot put a, um, you cannot measure value, you can only compare it. No. Your first sack is, yeah, is more valuable than the second. So I think uh, I'm afraid I have to uh, close this discussion now because I, I was really looking for short questions. But uh, anyhow, uh, I'm going to have a break in about five minutes, so I want to say a few things, and then I haven't covered even half of what I was going to say in this first lecture, so after the break I'm going to continue lecturing, I'm sorry about that, but uh, I just have to cover a certain amount of material. But before we uh, go for a coffee break, I would like to point out to you that 
uh, why I was so secretive about this uh, interpretation, total price and unit price, as an explanation for uh, the concept of utility on the one hand and uh, marginal utility on the other. The reason is that in a way we are putting the cart before the horse because uh, the real reason why Karl Menger brought in these two axioms very early in the discussion is because he wanted to explain the origin of money. Now if you don't have money, you, there's no way to talk about prices. Because what is a price? A price is a measure of the exchange rate between the good, subject to trade, and the monetary commodity. So if you don't have monetary commodity, because it's still a very, very primitive society, there's no way to talk about price. So you are putting the cart before the horse if you bring in this. But I thought this was still worth taking the chance that uh, you know we anticipate that there will be eventually a price and there will be a market and we graduate from uh, what you call uh, direct exchange, which is barter, to indirect exchange, which is buying and selling against money, monetary commodity. So that is the reason. Now, I, for the benefit of those of you, few as there may be, who are either mathematically inclined or have a little bit of exposure to what they call in America calculus for a lot of various sciences people have to take calculus. I would like to point out that there is a mathematical relation between the utility curve and the marginal utility curve. Can you tell me what this relation is? The slope. The slope. Uh, yeah, the more technical derivative or the differential quotient. Question, which is, which of the two curves is the differential quotient or the derivative, more commonly known as the derivative? Which the marginal utility curve is just the first derivative of the utility curve. Okay? Now, I already drew half of the uh, limiting case down there, where the utility curve is a straight line. Okay? Question, what is the marginal utility curve in that limiting case? Now, obviously, <laughs> you are going to... Okay, so... So, all right. Um, a, a straight line, in fact, a horizontal. Right? Yes. Yes. 
And this is very important because this means that marginal utility can be constant. In, in which you might say contradicts the axiom which says that it must be declining in every case. However, as a limiting case, we might just say that the marginal utility declines ever so slowly that it's practically constant. Theoretically it may not be, but for all practical purposes the decline is so small that we are just as, well, consider it as constant. So I have to put that in. Constant marginal utility, which has the result that the utility curve is a straight line with a slope. And actually, the slope is measured by that constant. And this is, this is very useful to consider this. And I would not say it contradicts the axiom. It confirms the axiom as a limiting case. You see, this is the case where you, uh, if you buy twice as much, it will cost you twice as much. But, you know, in most of the real-life examples, this is not true, that if you buy twice as much, which means that it will cost you, because it will cost you less than twice as much. You see, this is increasing, true, but at a declining rate. So uh, this will be the subject of the second lecture tomorrow, the, uh, how Constant marginal utility arises as an ideal, and the monetary commodity will realize that limiting case. And that is going to be gold. But that's tomorrow. But when we come back after half an hour coffee break, I will just continue with a few more things about the first topic because I just want to put it into context about the idea of coordination and the role of the entrepreneur and so on. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's adjourn for coffee break which is in the kitchen. You know, you all know the kitchen? Okay, thank you very much.